and thank you all for joining us on season two, episode two of Kansas Canopy, a podcast of the Kansas Forest Service. I am here today with Chuck Audie, the Geary County Extension Agent, newly retired, very newly retired, to talk about the impact of woody species, invasive woody species on birds. Thank you so much for joining me, Chuck. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here today, Ariel. Love talking about birds. Yes, I know you do. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. We are very fresh into that. What is it like? Are you loving it? I am loving it. Yeah, just, you know, three weeks into it right now, um, still figuring it out. And and what day is it? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> But just, it's, I miss the people, but I, I don't miss the routine and the fact that I can, if I don't get something done today, I don't have to worry about tomorrow being Monday because I can work on it tomorrow. Absolutely. So. A lot you of fun. All the time. So speaking of which, you have a ton of hobbies. We were talking about that. You grow garlic and you, now you have your farm to take care of. But birding is a big one for you. Can you just tell us a little bit about what birding means to you and how you got into it? Well, birding is everything to me. I mean, it's, it's really... A, goes down to my soul. Um, my mother was a bird watcher, so I started bird watching by the time I was five years old. Um, I was identifying birds myself, so it's just always has been there. Jokingly, I tell people birds and bugs were my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, I find it fascinating. Um, and you know, since I started when I was five, I've now got 60 years worth of birding. And I've seen a lot of changes over that time. Mm-hmm. Decreasing number of species. Some decreasing a lot and that concerns me and some of the things I'm going to do in in retirement um, obviously go bird watching more right because I enjoy that but also just working on different projects of of quantifying some of the the losses that we've had Um, if you remember back to when West Nile virus first hit the state had a big impact on certain species black black capped chickadees are one that took a significant hit and have not recovered. And I, I'm going to, I'm working on going back and, and documenting that, doing some statistical analysis on it, just to, to show what an impact that it has has. And, and plant material that's out there and the changing of, of ecosystems, if you will, um, which goes along to some extent with climate change is gonna have and is having a big impact on bird populations. Yeah, absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's kind of helpful. A lot of people are really familiar with what's going on with bees and that there's not one single thing affecting it, but a lot. Is that similar to what we're seeing with birds? Absolutely. Absolutely. People want a smoking gun. They want a quick, easy, single issue that can be addressed. Right. This, these are not issues that are that simple. Yeah. Just so many different things going on. Um, you know, it's, they, they want it to be pesticides. They want it to be cell phone towers. You know, there's all sorts of crazy things. But it isn't. It's just it's it's a it's domino after domino after domino, and that's what's really impacting um, a lot of the the natural the species that are around in our natural world. Right. Absolutely. So a lot of things affecting bird populations, but we are we're going to whittle it down for today's discussion. Obviously, a lot to dive into. But when we're looking at invasive woody species, and those of you that didn't catch it last month, we looked at invasive woody species and the impact specifically on insects. But when we're looking at birds, what invasive woody species do you feel like are having the biggest impact on our bird populations? You know, it's, I think it comes down to two right now, and it becomes really controversial, or not controversial, but it's, it's hard sometimes to wrap our head around it. But it comes down to the bush honeysuckle, mm-hmm. and it comes down to the ornamental calorie pears. Yeah. These are both species, both different plant groups, that 
um, have fruit that birds will eat and eat readily, which then multiplies itself into the fact that we have extreme population explosion of these species to the detriment to our native species. Yeah. So it's that's something that has been looked at actually for quite some time. Mm-hmm. There's been some really good research going back, really in some cases back to the 80s and, and late 70s, on the nutrient value of some of the, the fruit of some of these invasive species. Um, been a lot of research done in Ohio, New York, up into New England. Not a lot here in Kansas yet, and I'd, I'd like to see that worked on. But something that we've seen, and, and most of it has been with the bush honeysuckle, because that has been a problem developing longer than the, than the calorie pears. Mm-hmm. But the bush honeysuckle, the fruit is red. Red is a flashing neon light to most, most songbirds especially. Um, it gets their attention. Birds see into the ultraviolet and the infrared. I mean, they, they don't see the world the same way as you and I see it. Right. So this red, just like, with, just like with hummingbird feeders, red gets their attention. Well, those bush honeysuckle berries are bright red. When everything else is gone, virtually, bush honeysuckles still have their leaves. They've still got that fruit hanging on, so it becomes a real obvious target. When nutrient analysis was, being, was done on the bush honeysuckle fruit, comparing it to, say, a lot of our native dogwoods. We found that the fat and the energy content was so much lower in the bush honeysuckle than the others. So they're eating a lot of it, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily doing them a lot of good. Right. Because it's like the celery diet. You know, the more you eat, it doesn't do any good because <laughs> yeah. there's, there's just no nutrients there to begin with. Yeah. So I have, have yet to find an analysis on the calorie pairs Mm-hmm. But again, it, it's a that's a little little fruit that doesn't have a lot of um doesn't have a lot of pulp to it, right? And it tends to be eaten late in the season. I've seen a lot of calorie pears over the years that the birds aren't even into it until February and March, when the stuff is half decayed and probably half fermented by then right. too. So you know that's something that I think we'd really need to look at. But not only are these plants invasive in that they're taking over because the birds are eating the fruit. Mm-hmm. But they're just not getting the good out of it right. that they really should. So they're, it's lower quality food. It's junk food, if you will, for the birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just and it's crowding out all the stuff that would be better for them to eat. So that's a real problem that we've got to look at. I would really like to see some research um, done on the calorie pear nutrients. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the studies that have already been done are looking at some of the native dogwood species in the northeast and the east. Um, let's get... Let's get um, Rough leaf dogwood in there, yeah. Cornus drummondi. Let's look at the nutrient on that because I know when I go out bird watching in August, all I have to do is is find a, a thicket of rough leaf dogwood and those white berries, and the birds are packed into that like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, they're fueling up on the way south. Mm-hmm. I don't think that people understand that bird nutrition is different than human nutrition. Right. You're talking about species that live three to ten years. And so we're not worried about long-term cholesterol uptake and things like that, <laughs> things that I'm worried about. Yeah. Um, so, that, I mean, and, and throughout the, the season, what they eat is going to change. We get into the wintertime, and we see a lot of birds at our bird feeders eating sunflower seeds and, and safflower seed, seeds that have high oil content, high energy. They need those to keep their little bodies warm. Right. They need that fuel. Now it gets into the springtime, they start laying eggs, they're going after high protein, they're going after caterpillars. I mean, their diets really change as they go through the year. So they will eat what's available. 
Mm-hmm. They w- might prefer to have, you know, food A, but if food A is not there, they'll do what they have to to keep from starving. Right. I, I jokingly say that, that a lot of the, the ground-feeding birds would prefer to have white prozo millet. <laughs> if they don't have it, they will eat milo. They don't want to, but <laughs> yeah. they will eat milo. So, you know, it's, it's just it's what they eat through the year changes as their body needs change, as, as the need, needs of their young change. When they've got those little hatchlings there, they're not going to be able to eat seeds. Those little birds cannot digest seeds very well. They've got to have something soft and gooey right. that they can digest fairly easily, and, and that is high protein, so caterpillars and insects. That was something else that some of these studies looked at was the number of insects on the invasive plants and non-native plants versus the native plants, and less diversity, lower numbers, um, early in the spring, migrations coming through, there's a lot fewer of the little small midges and flies that right. visit these plants that, I mean, are high protein. They, they're, they're annoyance to us, but if you're a small songbird, each one of those little midges is an important snack. Mm-hmm. So there, there's just, it's not just the, the food that's on them, but it's the in, insects that are attracted to it that are also food. So yeah. people need to think about more than just the obvious, that there's the incidental stuff. When I talk about landscaping for wildlife, landscaping for birds. Yep. One of the things I talk about is you may plant something, a tree, that you think, well, why on earth, like sycamore trees? Hummingbirds love sycamore trees. They're not getting any nectar from it, but sycamore trees late in the summer are loaded with little insects on their sides of leaves. You can't live by candy alone. That sugar water isn't enough. You've got to have some protein. So it's, it's that secondary effect that ripples on down. A lot of these plants will just take over the understory of, of the, the native woodlands. So some of those other important plants don't have a chance. So we've got a two, three, d- double, triple whammy going on here with the crowding out the desirable plants, the fruit isn't nearly as good, and the insect life that they support isn't nearly as diverse and important. I, that's an excellent point. And I think that I'm so glad that we did insects last month and we're doing birds this month because they're only two pieces of our ecosystem puzzle. But just like you were saying, I think they really bring it full circle because you're seeing, you know, Ryan talked about, they're not, you may see insects on these invasive plants, but they're not supporting the amount of insects that a native tree or a native shrub should. But then you also touched on the fact that not only are the birds not getting the nutrition, they're eating these things and they're contributing to the spread. Right. You know, you see it right down the power lines. And so birds play a really interesting role. In this invasive talk. Yeah, I mean, it's they can't help it. They've got to live. Yeah. And they're going to feed on what's available. Now, if that's the only thing they can find, they're going to feed on it. Um, I think there are so many other alternatives that we should be planting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think back to when, when the original Bradford pears came out. Everybody planted them. Yeah. And they were sterile because they couldn't cross-pollinate because they were all genetically identical. Absolutely. And they had some other issues, so then they started getting some that were just enough genetically different. Boom! Instantly we had issues. Got a problem. <laughs> I mean, I was recommending when I started 40 years ago as a county extension agent, I was recommending planting bush honeysuckle. Right. Because it was a, we thought it was a good plant. Yeah. We'd see the birds and they're eating them. We didn't understand that 40 years from now, you're going to really be sorry you planted that. Yeah, um, the ramifications. The, the long-term ramifications, that, that ripple effect, it's the stone dropped into the into the pond and just ripples go out a long ways that's for sure absolutely and so you touched on it and i i think that's the item that people are most interested in 
we've removed something invasive from our property, what should we go back in for? What should people be thinking about when they're replanting so we don't end up in another calorie pair <laughs> type of right. mistake? Right. I, you know, there's a lot of good native plant materials out there. Um, I think some of the literature for, you know, plants beneficial to wildlife mm -hmm. has been a little bit lacking. I've, I've worked with Charlie Barton on, on a little bit on, on some of that, and I yeah. think there needs to be more work done. Um, I've worked with some of the other folks at the Kansas Forest Service about, you know, identifying plants that are good. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it goes down to, to what species are you looking at and most interested right. in. Um, I, I think that the, that the ornamental crab apples, the flying mm -hmm. crab apples, uh, you, everybody quit planting those because they like them brilliant white early season yeah. colors of the, of the calorie pair. We, we need to, you know, eliminate those. We, before I retired, we cut, I had the two calorie pairs in front of the extension office and Junction mm -hmm. City cut down. I said, get them out of here. It's a great celebration. <laughs> oh yeah. I said, we, those things have to go. Yeah. Um, we have so many, so many different flowering crab apples of mm -hmm. varying colors and we don't see the problem. The birds eat the fruit. Right. And, and again, it, it tends to be later on in the season after they've, you know, gotten half rotted, maybe half fermented. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that we don't see the problem with the volunteer from that. I've mm -hmm. rarely seen a volunteer apple tree. No, I haven't. Anywhere. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's a good thing to go to. And there's so many different colors of, of, of flowers. You've got so many different forms. You've got Great small variety. ones, big ones. It's just wonderful on that. Um, I think we need to look at things like serviceberry mm -hmm. a lot more. Yeah. Um, some of the native plums. One of my favorites, if you've got enough space, is that rough leaf dogwood. Mm -hmm. It's native. Yeah, people want the flowering dogwood because of the flowers. And this isn't flowering dogwood country in much right. of Kansas. Right. The, the rough leaf dogwood will do very well. And those white berries... Oh, when I, I mean, they're still, the birds are still coming through and they're still hitting them. They're, yeah. the thickets are getting pretty thin, <laughs> but they're, they're really hitting them hard. So, I mean, those are very important plants. Um, I think one of my favorite all time uh, bird plants is the Eastern red cedar. Mm -hmm. um, as I tell people, the same thing that makes it a very good wildlife plant, a good bird plant, makes it a, a menace in, in the pastures. Right. But fire is cheap, and fire is effective at controlling them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and you know, you've got to you got to plant a lot of them yep. because you're going to have separate males and females, um, separate male and female plants. But you know, the I've seen so many species of birds mm -hmm. into those cedar trees, um, getting those, that food. Plus, windbreak. It's an evergreen. It's got good windbreak. Yep. You know, those are. I mean, right there is a is a good batch of some of my favorite plants. Um, wild plum, wild, um, the, the choke cherries. Yeah. All of these are, they're native plants. Mm -hmm. They've got food that uh, quite often we share. I mean, I've got a couple of apple trees in my yard and the blue jays love my apples and my yeah. pear, my, my Bartlett pear, not a Bradford pear. But I, I think just a lot of things, we need to be willing to, to share our fruits yeah. with the wildlife. I think it's really important. Um, the, the, a lot of the cherries, the tart cherries, um, that we use for cherry pies for all these years, I think really need to, we need to plant more of them. Yeah. Even if you don't like cherries, you're never going it, to, it's a pretty little ornamental tree. Absolutely. So I think we've, we've got to change our mindset about our landscapes. Um, we, we've, so many of us grew up with this concept of what was 
a proper landscape that was based on southern England. Mm-hmm. And our climate is not southern England. Yeah. We're in the prairie for much of the country, uh, for much of the state, um, unless you're in some of those Missouri border states and then you're eastern deciduous forest, but know where you are. Oak trees yeah. are, I mean, songbirds certainly aren't going to eat the acorns, but woodpeckers love them. Mm-hmm. Turkeys love them. I mean, oaks are a very valuable part, and that's one of the species that's getting crowded out in, by, by the bush honeysuckle in our eastern deciduous forest. Um, they just can't get going again yeah. between them and the white-tailed deer sometimes. But, <laughs> but it's, I mean, we've, we've got to go back to the basics right. and, and what works well. And I think, you know, those are amazing examples. And even within it, you know, just within a service berry or an oak, there are so many options if you're looking for a flower color or a leaf shape. I mean, a shade tree versus an ornamental tree. Um, but I think the, you know, you touched on eastern red cedar and some of the downfalls of some of these, you know, crabapple fruit can be messy. There are, are good attributes and bad attributes to every plant. So just taking the time to make that decision. But I think what we recognize now is we can't afford to overlook the bad attributes of these invasive species any longer. Exactly. Location, location, location. You know, right plant, right place. Understand what you have and then look for something that will fit into it. Too many people see, oh, I want that tree. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to put it? I don't know. I just want that tree. (laughs) Uh, We probably both as county agents dealt with that problem. Yes. So we, we've got to start by making an inventory of like, okay, what is the area where I want a tree? Mm-hmm. What would fit well in that? Yeah. Um, and then we can start going from there rather than going again the, the proverbial cart before the horse. We, we've got an inventory location. Know what the address it, It's sunny. It's hot. It's shady. It's moist. It's dry. It's rock. Wh- whatever it is, yeah. understand what you've got. You, you're not going to change that very easily. Mm-hmm. You're not going to change the climate at all. And you also need to look at the fact that climate change is real. Yeah. It is getting warmer. Mm-hmm. We can spend all day arguing whether humans have impacted that or not. The climate is getting warmer. It's happening. Let's just accept yeah. that and then move on and realize that things that we planted 40 years ago, it may just be getting a little bit too hot and dry for them. We need to be looking at maybe something else that was used in, in Oklahoma in northern Texas, yeah. because those kind of climates are going to be here in another 20 to 40 years. So let's plan ahead for it. Absolutely. And the treatment of those plants as well. You know, maybe you didn't have to water a seven-year-old tree previously, but in times of drought, that might yeah. be necessary. I, I was out on a landscape call and somebody was complaining about this plant had bloomed once. It said it would bloom all the time. I said, well, it will bloom throughout the summer if you fertilize and water it. Right. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. Okay, then it's going to bloom in the spring and that'll be it. Yeah. So match your expectations to the time and the management that you're willing to put in on it. Absolutely. It, it, gets, it comes down to people want a, a, a golf course lawn with 30 minutes a weekend on the yeah. lawnmower. You know, it, you're not going to happen. It's not, <laughs> not going to happen. So, much. so, so match that up and, and realize yeah. that you can plant an, an apple tree a fruiting, a fruit tree of some kind Mm -hmm. and never prune it, never do a thing to it. And you'll have a shade tree that produces fruit. It may not be good for what you want to do because you don't want to prune it and spray it or do whatever else you need to do, but you can still plant it and enjoy it. Yes. So thinking about your uses. Yes, absolutely. Your uses, your location, 
how much time am I willing to put in on it? Mm-hmm. And the birds. And We're the birds. We're going to put those at the top of everybody's list that's listening to it. But, put and, them and, all at the top. And the fun thing is, I mean, everything around our, our, around our yard is for the birds. Right. But you know what? The deer come up and steal my apples. You know, I'll, I've got a woodchuck that'll come in and start fattening up on the apples. Mm-hmm. The possums love my pears, as do the yellow jackets. You know, I, I've got yes. all these other things that, that come in and, you know... Raccoons kind of drive me a little bit crazy sometimes, but yeah. it, it's not just the birds. They may be the primary, but they're not the only. You're, you're putting out a buffet in your yard, and what you get, you get. You really can't exclude a species. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's great. So when we're thinking about you know the habitat and the food, what else could people be doing? We've They're convinced they've removed all the woody invasives from their yard or their property. What should people be doing to support birds here in Kansas? Because we know they're facing a lot of challenges right now. Yes, they are. Um, first of all, don't be obsessive garden cleaners in the fall. Mm-hmm. Not just birds, but a lot of species depend on those um, leftover plant materials. Um, if, you, if you just go into an area that hasn't been well-mannered, well-kept up, um, and, and watch the birds in the spring, you know, they're on those old zinnia and marigolds, ripping out um, fibers out of the stems to build their nests out of. Um, insects are using those. So if you do feel you get to a point where I need to clean it up, don't throw in the trash or the burn barrel. Put a little pile over to the side. They will find it. You know, look at the plant materials and what do you have. Put water out. Mm-hmm. Water is one of those things. We're in a semi-arid climate here. Yeah. A lot of Kansas is not flush with water. Yeah. And, and I mean, surface water in western Kansas can be a real challenge to find. Mm-hmm. Every bird watcher in the state of Kansas knows if you're in western Kansas, you try to find the, the, the runoff lagoons at the feedlots or the water treatment plants because that's the only open water. And that's where you're going to find the shorebirds and the ducks. Yeah. Um, so having a bird bath out, clean it out every three or four days to keep mosquitoes from growing this time yeah. of year, you know, things like that is very helpful. If you have a cat, please keep it inside. That's all I'm going to say on that. Yeah. Um, the, the the things that we plant, start looking at, at what do I want to call them? Plants that have no function. Mm-hmm. They look pretty, but they don't really provide anything for pollinators, for birds, for anything else. You know, have plants have a function. Um, and, and then minimize the use of pesticides. Yeah. You know, I have long felt, and I have absolutely no scientific evidence to back this up, that 70 to 80 percent of our pesticide applications in our yards is for purely aesthetic purposes. Yeah. They do nothing to help the health of the plant. They're to make them look prettier so that we feel better about it. Yes. You know, if my lilac loses all of its leaves by the end of August, which it does just about every year, it's going to be okay. I don't need to be spraying a lot of stuff on there. A few aphids on my roses or other plants, you know, the ladybugs are going to catch up with it eventually. Right. And some of those little songbirds will get those out of there also. So just minimize that you say, is, is my using this product going to improve the health of that plant? And most of the time, no, it isn't. Right. I, I've got fruit trees, and I don't spray them. Mm-hmm. Part of it is I just don't want to mess with it. But, you know, if I get a few codling moths in my apples, I can work around that. It's not a problem. So, it's, it's, again, it's your expectations. Yes. Adjust your expectations to the parameters of what you're trying to benefit. Absolutely. And I know I'm preaching to the choir with you because you (laughs) served as an extension agent for so long. But in my time as an extension agent, you know, talking to people about an integrated pest management plan, which sounds like this big fancy thing, but it's what we've been talking about. You know, recognize that milkweed for pollinators means you're going to have aphids on it Mm -hmm. and that 
things are going to have holes in them and, yeah. and look a little rough around the edges. But the other thing that I just wish, if I could have one you know, magic wand wish, is that people recognize the pest and disease they were trying to treat before they ever grabbed a bottle. Because I can almost guarantee you, you're wrong. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, how many times did we have people come in? Yeah. You know, I've got this on my leaf and I use this. Well, no, you, you've got a disease on the leaf and you've got an insecticide in your hand there. That, yes. the, the, the two just aren't going Yeah, it's, it's understand the natural. We, I really have felt for a long time that we have created a society that is natural world. I hate to use the word ignorant because it's got a bad connotation, but people are totally uninformed about the natural world. Yeah. We, we have to get back to understanding that we are part of the natural world. Mm -hmm. There's not nature, and then we're excluded from it. We're all in this together. Yeah. Um, Roger Torrey Peterson, who just absolutely revolutionized bird watching and, and bird field guides, um, once said that birds are the litmus paper of the environment. Mm -hmm. That if the birds are doing well, humans are going to do well. You think back to the coal miners. They took the canary down into the coal mine. Why? Because if the air went bad, the canary was going to quit singing immediately. Yeah. <laughs> so if the canary wasn't doing well, you get the heck out of the coal Good mine. <laughs> so I think that, that Roger was absolutely correct that we've got to pay attention to the birds. And if the bird populations are suffering, and we're seeing it now with insect populations suffering, yep. um, I, I jokingly say that one of the best ways to, to identify the, the natural world health in an area is to drive through an area at night. And then count the bug splatters in your windshield. Yeah. This time of year especially because we're mm -hmm. right at the peak of a lot of insects. And if you drive through an area, if you drive 50 miles down a road and you don't have very many insect splatters in your windshield, yeah, we got a problem. Absolutely. We've got a problem. So it's, you know, it's, it's not rocket science, but we've got to understand the world around us better. Absolutely, and I think you hit on a really good point, and you've talked about it before with birding, that one way we can get people to become more invested is to just get them to notice and appreciate. So what would your advice be for somebody who's maybe never gone out hiking and looking for birds or interested in that? Where could they start so they can become more invested in just that aspect of our ecosystem? Oh, yes. The, uh, I tell people it starts in your own backyard. Put up a couple of bird feeders and spend, spend some time watching them. Putting out bird feeders um, is a cheap thing. It's multi-generational. You don't need batteries. Um, yeah. So, I mean, during the pandemic, a lot of people bought a lot of bird feed and bird feeders mm -hmm. and would have two, three generations at a time on the weekend watching the birds. Yeah. So it just being aware of what's there. And then there's a lot of good books out there. Uh, the Sibley Field Guide to, to Birds, the National Geographic Field Guide are, are both excellent books, not that expensive. And they've got apps for them too yeah. that are no more than that. So it can be very, very beneficial. Um, a lot of the larger communities, Manhattan, Topeka, Lawrence, Kansas City, Wichita, have groups that, that lead weekly or monthly bird walks. Mm -hmm. um, get involved in, in those and just go out there. Get, be up front. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. They, they welcome beginners. Yeah. And, and it's a really good way to, to become more aware because most people, I mean, we go outside and I'm hearing house finches. I'm hearing maybe a cedar waxwing over here. I'm, I'm hearing species and individuals. Yes. Other people, non-birders go out and they may hear a bird, but they have no idea what right. they're hearing. Right. So, I mean, some of the new apps on the phone, uh, the Merlin app, 
um, is a great one from the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology mm-hmm. um, that will help you not only do with, with the sounds, um, but with, you know, what do they look like? What time of year might they be in my area? Oh, it's never been in my area. That's probably not the bird then. Um, right. Birds have wings and they use them, but we got to use some common sense too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of resources out there. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has some great websites all about birds. They have is excellent a resources. Great. I mean, you see pictures, you can hear the songs, you can mm-hmm. read the natural history of them. Um, I can't say enough good things about that website. So, and I send a lot of people there. So just do that, but um, and, and then just ksbirds.org is a website that I help maintain for the Kansas Ornithological Society. Yeah. If nothing else, has got contact information for me and, and others yeah. um, so that people can get a hold of me because there's a lot of people out there that want to help others learn more about birds mm-hmm. because it's just such an important thing. I mean, I've, I've been doing it for over 60 years. Yeah. It, it really is my, my heart and soul, and one of the exciting things about retirement for me is I can spend more time doing it. Yes. Once the garlic is planted. I can yes. do more time. <laughs> but it, it's just, it's, and as you start to pay more attention to the birds and you start to notice the plants and you start to notice the dragonflies and the butterflies, it's just, it's, you know, it's a slippery slope that has a good ending. Yes, it unfolds. <laughs> yes, it really does. That's excellent. And I'll make sure to link all of those resources in this podcast so anybody that's listening, you can find those accessibly. Thank you so much, Chuck, for your time today. Is there anything else you want to say just to wrap up? To Well, I, thank you for the opportunity to talk yes. about birds. You know how I feel about birds. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And just uh, if, if people want to know, there's a lot of very simple things mm-hmm. that they can do that are going to benefit birds and, and the whole environment in their own yard. Absolutely. Birds are nice in that the things that are beneficial for them will help others as well. Absolutely. It's wonderful first full circle. Well, thank you so much, Chuck, and thank you all so much for listening. This has been Season 2, Episode 2 of the Kansas Canopy Podcast, the podcast of the Kansas Forest Service. My name is Ariel Whiteley-Knoll, and I'm the Communications Coordinator for the Kansas Forest Service. If you have not already, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and we will see you all next month.